Welcome to the Business Scholarship Podcast, interdisciplinary conversations about new works in the broad world of business research. I'm your host, Andrew Jennings. If you like what you hear today, please consider subscribing to the podcast or sharing with others who might like it too. And if you have ideas for future episodes, let me know. My email address is andrew at andrewkjennings.com, and I look forward to hearing from you. Our guests today are Abraham Cable, Professor of Law at the University of California, Hastings, Alexander Platt, Associate Professor of Law at the University of Kansas, Amy Westbrook, Professor of Law at Washburn University, and Matthew Wansley, Assistant Professor of Law at Yeshiva University. Abe is the author of Time Enough for Counting, a Unicorn Retrospective, which was published in the Yale Journal on Regulation Bulletin. Alex is the author of Unicorn Phobia, which is forthcoming in the Harvard Business Law Review. Amy is the author of We're Working on Corporate Governance, Stakeholder Vulnerability, and Unicorn Companies, which was recently published in the University of Pennsylvania Journal of Business Law. And Matt is the author of Taming Unicorns, which is forthcoming in the Indiana Law Journal. I'll add links to all these papers in the show notes for the episode. Amy, Matt, welcome to the Business Scholarship Podcast. And Abe, Alex, welcome back. Thank you. Thanks, Andrew. Thank you, Andrew. I'm excited to have this all-star panel on a topic that is really on the front page of newspapers at least every other day or so, and is very much on the minds of academics and business leaders and just regular folks as well. And that's the topic of unicorns in the technology in the VC space. You've all written recently about unicorns. I wondered if we could start with an introduction on where you see unicorns. In your view, are these businesses special from the perspective of securities regulation or from business in general? And if you do view them as special, what makes them so? Andrew, this is Abe. I'll jump in. My answer to that is Yes, but in the sense that I think there's no question that what we call unicorns, which are companies that have achieved a billion dollar post money valuation as private companies, are a new feature of the landscape if we compare today to the dot com era. That's pretty clear. I was looking it up. Yahoo, which is a classic dot com era startup, went public with about a million dollars in revenues and fewer than 50 employees. And so we're definitely in a different era than that with so many of these companies staying private longer and achieving larger valuations. And I assume we'll all chime in at some point about why that is. The one way I would push back just a little bit is to say there's a little bit of a question about whether unicorn status is really a sensible way to sort companies out. The billion dollar valuation threshold is fairly arbitrary, seems to have achieved something of a status symbol, meaning a lot of the valuations are oddly like at a billion dollars, which seems uncanny. Some of the companies, if you start digging into the big long lists, aren't really what we think of as startups. There's all sorts of venture capital frolics in there, Beats Electronics, which is, I don't know if you really think of that as a Silicon Valley company or like Fanatics, which makes like hats and sports cards. A lot of it's mundane business to business stuff. I would say certainly there's a different segment emerging of the mature private company, whether the unicorn moniker is really the right way to capture a meaningful segment of the market, I think is maybe a little bit still up in the air. I'll take a crack. This is Alex. I think we'd all agree that unicorns are special in the technical legal sense. That is, although they are now quite large and as large as many public companies are, they aren't subject to the same regulatory and institutional controls as those companies. That is, they don't have to make periodic disclosures. Their shares typically don't trade freely, so they're not subject to market discipline like public companies are. And the SEC doesn't 
devote as many resources to investigating or enforcing securities fraud committed by these companies. I think we'd all agree on that. I also think we'd probably all agree that unicorns have provided some really enormous social benefits. That is benefits not only to their investors, but also to employees, consumers, society at large. I, for one, don't think that's a coincidence. I think that the social benefits that unicorns have been providing are in part contingent on that unique regulatory status that they hold. In my paper, I developed that point theoretically, but also in the context of a case study of a company, and the company is Moderna. We all know the company Moderna is the one who developed a very effective coronavirus vaccine in kind of record-breaking time. Doing so dramatically improved the lives of hundreds of millions of people, not only those who got the vaccine, but also those who got to live in the society that was at least partially vaccinated. Moderna was founded in 2010. It achieved unicorn status shortly thereafter and didn't go public for many years until December of 2018. What I try to show in the paper is that Moderna's ability to develop the coronavirus vaccine in 2020 was actually a function of its lengthy corporate adolescence. That is, it is precisely the current regulatory regime governing unicorns that enabled Moderna's success. This is Amy. I'll also take a crack at this. And thank you again, Andrew, and also Abe and Alex and Matt for this conversation. In terms of whether or not unicorns are special, I'll say that if you believe their valuations, they're big. And they combine that with an unusual set of characteristics. They're private. They're being funded by a fairly insular VC community. And now increasingly, these mega funds like Tiger and SoftBank. And these investors are unusually willing to cede control to the founders and insiders. In fact, they compete to fund them often by establishing that they're pretty hands-off. So that's new. So I think I'm going to try to reframe your question a little bit and say that I think what is special, and Alex was getting at this a little bit, is the economic and legal environment in which unicorns have developed. I think it's really unprecedented, even if we go all the way back to the robber barons. And I think we have a perfect storm with a number of developments, things like the lenient approach of state corporation law to corporate governance, the securities laws that have enabled and promoted the really robust private market we're seeing, the sustained low interest rate environment, even in the public markets, or the rise of institutional investors and index funds. And I think all this together has enabled an historic level of income inequality in our country, along with a very problematic concentration of ownership of U.S. firms and thus the whole economy. I don't think unicorns themselves as companies are particularly notable, except for their size and really how much few questions asked funding they can get. They're startups, and that's risky, but potentially profitable and even transformational, as Alex points out, on rare occasions. And the tech ones get a lot of hype. And the appeal to the VC and the fund culture that invests in them is obvious. But many are simply, I think, heavily funded new companies that provide a service and or a software. Some fail, some succeed. And when they do, predictable people gain and predictable people lose. But we're talking about a lot of people and a lot of money and an impact that may be larger than I think we should allow without some more checks and balances. What I'm saying, I think, is that the conditions that are spawning unicorns are special. 
And given that unicorns are large, relatively unregulated, and so potentially impact a wide swath of stakeholders, I think how the law approaches them deserves a pretty hard look. And I think that's something actually all of our papers are providing. I'll pick up on something that both Abe and Amy talked about, which is a little skepticism about the valuation in the first place. I think Amy said something like, if you believe their valuation. And I think for all the folks on this conversation right now, that comment seemed like an insightful point to make. And I want to spell out why that's an insightful point. The reason is valuations of private companies and unicorns are large private companies are quite opaque. The reason they're opaque is because they're not publicly traded and their valuations come to us basically from news releases that they publish themselves. Their news releases tend to give valuations in the following way. They will take the most recent round of fundraising. Let's say this is a, a Series E, a late stage startup that's reached unicorn status. And they will take the price per share that venture capitalists have paid and multiply that by the total number of shares outstanding and use that to determine their valuation. You might think that makes sense. Take price per share times total number of shares outstanding, you get in valuation. That formula works pretty well if we're talking about a publicly traded company that has one class of common shares, which at least until the rise of dual class shares used to be the near universal model. But privately held companies, especially if they've received venture funding, don't work that way. They have many classes of shares, and while most employees and sometimes founders hold common shares, venture capitalists hold preferred shares, and their preferred shares entitle them to special rights, like being paid out before anyone else gets any money in a liquidation of the company. The way that you would value a preferred share is quite different than the way that you would value a common share, because you'd want to take into account the financial value of all these special rights that the preferred shares have. So there's an empirical study that I bet most people on this podcast are familiar with by Will Gorneal and Ilya Srebulev that came out last year, where they took 135 unicorn companies and they looked at their publicly stated valuations, which by unicorns, by definition, were over $1 billion. And they tried to look more closely and ask, all right, if we appropriately valued all the special rights that these preferred shares had and use that to count backwards to come up with a price per share of the common shares, which of course are less valuable because they don't have any special rights. And we tried to then add up the value of all the different share classes. What total market capitalization would we come to? What they found is that almost one and a half of their sample, 65 and 135 unicorns they looked at, aren't even unicorns in that their valuation is less than a billion dollars. Of course, Valuations in itself, I don't think, have a ton of public significance. After all, as long as the investors are making informed decisions about their own purchases, we might not worry. But what valuations of private companies and unicorn companies reveal is these companies are just not that transparent. It's hard for ordinary investors, ordinary consumers, ordinary citizens to learn as much as they would about these companies as they can about comparable public companies. Of course, if most private companies are small and don't have a significant economic or social impact, maybe you don't worry too much about the opacity. But I think the difficult policy question, and I'm on the view that there's not an easy answer to question, but I think a difficult policy question is, is the fact that a greater number of 
socially and economically significant companies are now operating in a low transparency environment relative to the environment they would have operated in had they got public, which they probably would have done if we were two decades earlier before the rise of unicorns. Is that problematic? That's how I would frame the, the question about unicorn regulation. We might point to the 2012 Jobs Act as perhaps a starting point of this unicorn boom, starting with a few dozen companies valued at over a billion dollars in the private markets to now hundreds in the United States. Whether that $1 billion cutoff is meaningful and whether we even believe those valuations, life is certainly different for a unicorn as compared to a public company of a similar scale. I'd like to ask a question of Amy and Abe, and that is, have unicorns been, in your view, a net positive or a net negative for the capital markets? And perhaps have they been a net positive or net negative for society? Andrew, this is Abe. In terms of the capital markets, I took a look at a sample of companies in some recent work I did that were Basically, the unicorn existed on one of the several unicorn lists. At the time, the moniker sort of came into use around 2014. And I just tracked what happened to those companies. And they just confirm what is very palpable sitting in an office in San Francisco, California, which is that it's just kind of raining money out there when it comes to these companies. They IPO at high rates, much higher than the sort of average startup population, which is not an earth-shattering observation, given that these are companies that had already you know, reached high valuations. There are some non-trivial amount of failures, Theranos, some bankruptcies, there's a handful of those. There are some sort of in-between outcomes like mergers, but not very many. And so I just think it's hard if you look at what's happening with these companies in the aggregate to find some participant in what we would normally conceive of as the sort of entrepreneurial economy, that is founders, venture capital investors, employee, later stage investors in sort of growth equity. It's just hard to find anyone who seems to me is having trouble navigating this new environment in any real sort of discernible pattern. I do have to say that, that study was really an exercise in theory building and is a quirky set of companies and whether that plays out in a larger group of unicorns, who knows, but it does confirm my sense that these companies are mostly succeeding and in a way that has frankly, I think, refuted a sort of hand-wringing string of scholarship on the death of IPOs that over the prior 10 or 15 years. It's not to say that we shouldn't continue to be vigilant, worry about whether employees have as much visibility into the success of companies as other participants and whether we might worry some about late stage investors and perhaps an increasing number of retail investors who get exposure to those late stage investors. And there are areas to look at, but I just have a hard time seeing some sort of pattern that whatever policy mix we were going for when we really permitted these companies to stay private through equity compensation regulation, through the Jobs Act, you name it. It doesn't seem to me that we have some pile of evidence suggesting that all of that has gone off the rails. Now, you asked this other question, which is about whether they're good for society. And I'll simply say, I would leave that discussion to the other participants in this podcast because they've written so thoughtfully about it. I tend to look at this as something of a 
corporate law traditionalist that thinks that corporate and securities law do their best when they're focused on the core problem of agency costs between owners and managers and potential owners. And that when corporate law tries to go much beyond that, it's often disappointing. And that sectoral law is maybe a better place to regulate medical devices and taxi cab regulation and you name it. But others, again, on this call have written really thoughtfully about the broader societal problems. This is Amy, and I'll also respond to that. I I think Abe makes some really excellent points. We're going to ask about the impact of unicorns on markets or society. I think it's unclear that's the right question to ask, but I will say this. I think we all agree that not all unicorns are bad and not all unicorns are good. When I wrote about unicorns most recently, I was talking about WeWork as a jumping off place. And there I argued that we should take a closer look at the corporate governance of the bad ones, which, whether or not they're numerous, are certainly significant. Because if unicorns, if nothing else based on their size, have a pretty big impact beyond their four walls, they absorb hundreds of billions of investment dollars. A few of them are household words, they're verbs, and they impose substantial externalities. And there may be potentially positive ones for their founders, the insiders, early stage investors, and potentially negative ones. And that would be for a long list of other stakeholders, like their employees or their customers or their communities or whoever it might be. I actually think what we should ask is, what's the result of unicorns' persistently poor corporate governance? Because I think it is persistently poor. It's what the financial press calls their weirdo sparkly unicorn governance. And it's full of conflicts of interest and creative accounting and undisciplined operations and boards of directors that are not independent very hands-off, and I expect this is not unrelated, undiverse, strikingly undiverse in gender terms, stunningly undiverse when we discuss the inclusion of Black directors. Because unicorns, compared to our traditional and possibly outdated version of the large firm in our head, operate in a relatively unregulated, less transparent space. And it's not clear that we want to allow that. And by that, not just their impacts, but the concentration of wealth and power that enables them. It's not clear that we want to allow that as a societal cost in return, even, as Alex suggests, for something we appreciate as progress in particular sectors. So in terms of the larger policy issues that I think we're talking about unicorns raising, and I think are what are implicated in our pieces, I think unicorns provide us with an opportunity to think not only about corporate governance and diversity, but about the real and increasing inequality in our country, which is reflected in our financial markets. And I'm not sure is adequately addressed by our financial market regulation. If the question you're asking is really whether we like the direction of the capital markets and the tech sector, and maybe more broadly the country, we might not want to say, is it net positive? Is it net negative? But I'm still going to say probably no, not really. So Alex and Matt, Abe challenged his other panelists to weigh in on whether unicorns have been a net boon or bust for society. And Amy weighed in as well with their impact on the capital markets and corporate governance. Alex, you've talked about the example of Moderna and the impact that its COVID-19 vaccine has made on society and perhaps future mRNA vaccines will have. I wonder if you'd respond to that question about whether a unicorn's a good bad on net for capital markets or for society. And I wonder if there are 
reforms that others have proposed or that you have been thinking about that you either would advocate or perhaps caution against adoption? Thanks, Andrew. This is definitely in the air. As many as eight recent law review articles have made the case that unicorns pose a distinct danger to society and that new securities regulations are needed to rein them in. Not just scholars, SEC Commissioner Allison Heron Lee in a recent speech cited some of this literature in calling for reforms of the private markets. And former law professor Renee Jones, who really helped kick off this literature with an early article in a senior position at the SEC now where she's in a position to implement some of these proposals. What are the proposals on the table? There's a lot. There's mandatory IPOs when companies reach a certain size. There's mandatory disclosures. There's more tradability of shares. There's proposals for more SEC enforcement against private companies and more whistleblower protections and probably more. So I don't think it's a good idea to pursue those proposals right now. I have three main objections to them. Let me run through them quickly for you all. Number one, since Enron, corporate governance scholars have identified features of public companies that make those companies especially dangerous. According to this literature, things like executive compensation practices, the pressure to meet quarterly earnings projections, the threat of hedge fund activism have all contributed to corporate malfeasance in some of the most devastating scandals of our lifetimes, including the global financial crisis, the collapse of Enron and WorldCom, the BP oil spill, and many more. Notably, these are features that are unique to public companies. Unicorns don't have those features. So if that literature is correct, then pushing unicorns towards public company status is just going to swap one set of bad incentives for another and may not help and may make things worse. That's one objection. Another objection. So the proponents of unicorn reform, some of them have relied heavily on anecdotes of kind of high profile unicorn flameouts to make the case that unicorns pose this distinct danger and need to be reined in. The two examples that loom especially large in this literature are the cases of Uber and Theranos. Now, relying on highly salient examples of corporate misconduct to support new reforms is nothing new. In fact, a lot of securities regulation gets written in the shadow of particular events like this. But I think when you do that is when you base the case for new reforms on one or two highly salient anecdotes, it seems important that you make the case that your proposed reforms would have made a difference in the particular cases you're relying on. And I just don't think that's true for any of the reforms that have been proposed as applied to Uber or Theranos. I go through that in some detail in the paper. I'm not going to do it now. Let me just move on. The third and final objection to these proposals is the one I already mentioned, which is that changing the regulatory regime in these ways risks undermining the important social benefits that unicorns are currently providing us. I already talked about Moderna. Another area that's worth thinking hard about here is the area of climate tech. Venture capital funds have been pouring into the private companies working on various technologies that may help us deal with a climate crisis. There's a recent report that showed that 43 unicorn companies are working on climate technology. 
Now, these companies are risky. A lot of the technologies are probably going to fail, but still the prospect that one or more of these companies could emerge as an important resource for our society in dealing with the threat of climate change makes me want to be cautious before changing this regulatory regime in a way that might discourage that kind of beneficial activity. Alex has teed this issue up nicely, and I think I want to start with points of agreement. I agree with Alex that we don't know a lot about whether unicorns are having negative externalities on society that comparable public companies aren't having. And I think one reason it's a little early to feel too strongly about whether unicorns call for new regulatory interventions is that we don't have empirical data to suggest that their private company status is having a significant effect on their behavior. And moving back a step further, I think I also agree with Alex that we have to tread pretty lightly here because a lot of these companies have contributed not just economic value to their shareholders, but also on social value. So to me, though, the question isn't, are unicorns good or bad? Should they be snuffed out or should they be encouraged? But are there any aspects of the public company regulatory regime that we applied to public companies just because they were large and socially significant, that we should now be applying to private companies that are large and socially significant that have just decided not to become public companies? Specifically, one aspect of the public company regime that I worry about not having an analog in the private company sphere is how easy it is to trade the shares of unicorn companies. They might think that's simply a matter for investors. Whether a company wants to trade shares or not trade its shares, the only, this is basically the SEC's attitude, is protecting investors, making sure that investors are well-informed about the companies that they're trading. Everyone knows the way the SEC deals with this. It says, if you're going to be a public company, you have to make all these disclosures and expose yourself to liability, but your shares can be traded freely. If you're a private company, you don't have to make disclosures that are anywhere near as extensive and you face a lot less liability exposure, but your shares can't be widely traded. That's the SEC's current view. And I think there's a lot to be said for that view. If you just think about the regulation of unicorn companies through the lens of investor protection. But what if the level of transparency that a company faces because of regulation has effects on its behavior? The way that it affects third party consumers, suppliers, people who aren't its investors. If there is some difference in the way unicorns are behaving vis-a-vis third parties, then it's maybe not so straightforward as to say investor protection is the only thing that we care about. So let me give you an example that motivates me. A bunch of people now have mentioned Theranos. What interests me about the Theranos case is that there were a lot of folks in Silicon Valley who had significant doubts about Theranos. Some thought, yeah, they're saying they have this product and the product's not there. Others thought there's actually fraud that's going on, but they kept that information to themselves. And part of that, I think, has to do with the cultural norms in Silicon Valley. Venture capitalists wanting to have a reputation for being founder-friendly and not wanting to get on the wrong side of a high-profile founder of a successful startup. But another reason they're keeping quiet is that they can't do anything with this information. They can't trade on unicorn stock. In other words, you can make a long bet on this startup. You can bet that it's going to be successful by investing in if you're a private investor who has access to VC investments. But 
you can't bet against them the way that you could bet against any public company that you thought was doing something fraudulent or you thought was exaggerating its products. That doesn't exist for unicorn companies. And so the question that I want to ask is, are the positive externalities of trading, the information that is unearthed about companies that are subject to investor scrutiny, is that having a deterrent? Is it making it so that public companies are a little more careful because they know that negative information about their company could come out because there are short sellers waiting to chomp on any negative information about them. Short sellers don't exist from private companies. No one had the ability to short Theranos. And I think at least worth asking, would Theranos have been exposed earlier if the venture capitalists that looked at Theranos and said, hey, there's fraud here, this product isn't what they said it is, could have bet against it and cause its valuation to go down? I'm not saying we haven't answered that question, but I think it's an important open question that deserves more empirical study. I'd like to open the floor a little bit to the panelists. We have such a, an embarrassment of riches in terms of the different perspectives on unicorns here with us today. So I might start with Matt, if you'd like to maybe react to any thoughts that your co-panelists have offered today in the conversation or in some of the papers that are the basis of this conversation, I'd welcome you to get us started. Yeah, so I'm maybe someone who could fight with both sides because I'm a proponent asking about light touch regulation here. So I think there are folks both to my left and to my right in this conversation. But because he's a good sport, and all that I, I know he's a good sport, I'll go pick on Al. So I guess my question to Alex is this. Up until the 1990s, when venture-backed startups got to a certain size, they would generally go public. Today, those companies often are staying private, delayed their IPOs if they're not taking advantage of the stack trend that's recently. And I guess my question is, what would have happened that you would have been concerned about if today's unicorns, take Moderna, it's Alex's favorite example, had, because of social norms, felt that, yeah, we have to go public. Because to me, the question to ask about unicorn regulation if we were back in the 1990s when these companies would routinely go public, were they missing out on some sort of business opportunity, some greater ability to get in the private markets that unicorns are taking advantage of now? Because I think when most of us look back on the 1990s, we don't see it as a period where innovation was stifled. That was the, the dot-com boom. Obviously, the world has changed and we're not there anymore. But what do you think Moderna and its friends would have missed out on if they had gotten public? Thanks, Matt. Thanks for calling me a good sport. And I just want to say for the record, the paper I wrote was very much inspired by a very long email chain that I had with Matt after hearing him present his paper. So he is a great sport as well. I really credit his paper and thoughts on this issue for provoking my own thoughts on it. Here's what I think in response. Number one, the 90s predated a lot of things that we see now in our public markets. One would be Sarbanes-Oxley, the increasing compliance burdens on public companies, which make it more attractive to stay private and more costly to go public. 
Another would be the rise of hedge fund activism, perhaps increasing pressures on public companies to meet short-term results. If you believe that literature, the, the kind of post-Enron market myopia short-termism literature, some of it derives from more recent changes in the capital markets and public markets. So that would be one potential explanation for why we would expect to see less innovation if Moderna felt the pressure to go public now than if it were around in the 90s. Another question you asked is, what might have been lost had Moderna gone public? And that's a, the subject of the last 30 pages of my, my article. I'm sorry it's so many pages, but I'm going to give you some of the hits. The ability to be secret. Moderna was working on this technology, the mRNA technology from the very beginning, but it had some bumps along the road. There were scientific failures. There were crises in leadership. There were people fired. There were scientists who talked to the press about this or that. Much of that could have been devastating had the company been public and it would have actually, some of it would have gone public earlier. Some of it they swept under the rug until they went public. And I think that could have dissuaded people from pouring in new investment into the company. And as I show in the paper, that massive stockpile of cash is what enabled Moderna to be in the position in 2020 to move forward with this coronavirus vaccine. And here's a, if I can pose a question back to Matt, because this is really something Matt may be uniquely situated to pine on. Matt was a general counsel for a very large private company, saw some of this stuff from the inside. And so one of the questions I have about his proposal in particular is how it would have restructured the relationship between a company and its venture capital investors, potentially for the worse, although I'm open to hearing Matt's ideas about this. So here's what I'm wondering. We hear the term lock-in investor, and some of us may think that that's a bad thing, but of course, there's reasons why we want lock-in. An investor who's locked into a company has incentives to really think hard before investing, work with the founders and, and leaders of the company to ensure its success, look for longer-term benefits as opposed to a short-term increase that then they can turn around and capitalize on by cashing out their shares. So the idea that we're going to encourage or mandate private companies to allow their shares to be freely traded will almost certainly transform the relationship between the company and its investors. I wonder if Matt has a response to that, perhaps based on his own experience. I don't want to make you talk about things you can't talk about, Matt, but maybe informed by your, your personal experience, how might your proposal change that kind of fundamental relationship between the, the venture investor and the firm? I think it's an interesting question, right? And, and advocates of allowing companies to stay private longer often make similar arguments that you're going to have investors committed to long-term returns if their company is private and their shares aren't freely alienated. One reason I'm a little skeptical about it is the venture cycle is so quick, right? If most VCs are looking to make a profit within a few years, so their idea of the long-term might seem quite short-term to most people who are outside the VC world. And then the other thing is, it is not the case that private companies, as you well know, can't have employees or venture capitalists trade their shares. It's just that the trading is a lot more tightly regulated by the SEC. My view, and I think this part of my paper is uncontroversial, 
is that there is an emerging practice in Silicon Valley that I call selective liquidity. And what that means is the founder of a company or a company's venture capitalist have an opportunity to trade their shares while employees, the rank and file members of a startup, don't have that opportunity. So if we're so concerned about lock-in and making sure that people are committed to developing a novel technology over the long run, it seems strange that we have a regime that lets the people at the top, the entrepreneurs and their VCs, cash out when they want to, sometimes cashing out in the tens of billions of that, and ordinary employees are unable to do it. So I'm just not convinced that the the current regime really allows for the type of walk-in that the literature actually imagines. Instead, I think we have a world where well-connected people within a late-stage private company are able to trade, and employees aren't able to trade, and investors outside the company with information about the company are inside to trade. So I think it may be that we have a have a worst of both world scenario for the tradability regulation of large private companies. This is Amy, and I also have kind of a comment and a question, and not to pick on Matt, but it is for Matt. And I want to say, first of all, I liked your piece a lot. I like the idea of a more market-driven solution to the unicorn governance and transparency problems. And I think you're right that right now there's not a very good secondary market for unicorn shares. That's why the holder of these shares, as you point out, have incentives to keep their dirty laundry under wraps. But my question has to do with the impact of your proposal to make it easier for, roughly speaking, accredited investors to trade among themselves. And I see the benefits of the disclosure And the incentives for due diligence and the better pricing, I think those are all good things. But my question is that if your idea works, and I think it would work, do we want what I think would be the result, which is a three-tiered market, a truly private market for relatively small companies, a low regulation market for large companies held by rich people, and a legacy public market? So my difficulty with your idea is not that it won't work, but it will work too well. Right now, private companies go public, not to raise capital necessarily, but to gain liquidity for their investors and employees. And so IPOs are increasingly more liquidity events. And would your proposal mean, do you think, that unicorn investors would have sufficient liquidity to make IPOs superfluous? Because I'm thinking that if both business capital and investor liquidity can be obtained by startups, by rich people and institutions doing business amongst themselves, what does the public have to do with it anymore? There's no reason to go public. And given the sort of current concentration of wealth and power that I think are real issues here, I'm not sure how you would deal with that. And I know you suggest indirect investment by Main Street investors, but is that, do you think, enough? That's a very smart, sophisticated question. I think it's a fair characterization of the world that I'm imagining. Just to quickly give context for folks listening to this podcast who haven't read my paper, though. The world I'm imagining is a world where the SEC and Congress nudge unicorn companies to allow their shares to be traded by saying that if you make some minimum disclosures, not quite the extensive disclosures that we ask of publicly traded companies, but enough for investors to have basic information about the companies that they're investing in, we will allow you to make your shares more freely tradable among accredited investors, which as Amy said, are usually folks who are wealthy and financially sophisticated. Definition of accredited investors is a little controversial, but I think it does rough justice enough to people who can bear the risk of investing in private companies. 
I think Ying's vision of white paper is fair, that you'd have some smaller private companies where their shares aren't widely traded. You'd have publicly traded companies that we know today. And then I'm imagining a world in the middle where you'd have private companies that are having modestly widely traded among accredited investors and subject to some disclosures, but not quite all the disclosures that public companies are subject to. So let me take the two concerns you raised. So one concern is about retail investors and their ability to share in the appreciation of these private companies. And yeah, I think you're right to point to what I say in my paper, which is that I think we should do this indirectly through mutual funds and other investment vehicles that allow retail investors, that is people who might not be financially sophisticated, might not have a lot of money where they could take a lot of risk to invest in these companies in a diversified way. That is, they will invest in a mutual fund that will invest in a bunch of unicorn companies, thereby limiting their exposure to any one particular company. I think that is a good way to give retail investors some appreciation in the market. But the second point that I, that I took from what you said is that you might worry that this will create the obsolescence of the public market. Why won't companies just in the sort of middle ground market that I'm imagining? I think the answer to that is, while this market will be more liquid than today's private markets, it's hard to imagine it being all that less liquid, you won't get the trading volume that you get in publicly traded markets. And I think that will remain traction. Similarly, because I'm imposing some disclosure requirements on companies that are allowing their shares to be traded within these private markets, the marginal burden of going public is going to be low. So taking that next step of going to an IPO or going to a SPAC won't seem quite as radical as it would be to a startup today that's not used to make public disclosures. I'm imagining my intervention as more of a, a waiting for the public markets that has some of the burdens, but not all of the, and some of the liquidity, but not all of the liquidity. But importantly, and this is what you know motivates my proposal, the public gets a little more information about these companies while they're in this middle stage. And maybe we can weed out the theranoses while still giving some of the degree of secrecy that Alex was talking about for the Modernos who want to experiment a little bit more and aren't quite ready yet for quarterly earnings. I think I've pretty much just given the Goldilocks pitch from federal. I don't know that. No, I don't know that it'll quite work out though. That's what I think. All right. And Abe, do you want to complete the circle here? Sure. I'll go ahead and pose a question to Amy. And I think Amy falls among this group on the side of the spectrum that is unhappy with the current regulatory environment, or at least dedicates a lot of her recent piece to laying out potential inadequacies of that environment, and I think does it quite well. So here's my question, and by question, I'm going to give a speech and say, do you agree with it? My sense is that, as we all discussed, to some extent, there is this new feature or segment of the market, perhaps our unicorn cutoff for deciding where it starts and stops isn't perfect, but there is this mature private company segment of the market. And I think a lot of us have observed that could be that there is something of a regulatory blind spot there. But I will say what what I see when I look at these companies is that the market and the regulators are adjusting to this new reality that don't necessarily require any sort of fundamental reform. When I say the market is adjusting, I would say the companies 
are not just hanging out in this purgatory forever. They're generally getting themselves to IPO. They're taking advantage of direct listings, SPACs, and sort of new ways to do it, but they want liquidity. And so that's where they're heading. And this segment of the market is actually a temporary status on the way to IPO is what it seems to be developing into. Now, employees uh, are somewhat vulnerable, particularly if they're late arriving and have high strike prices for their options. But it's competitive market right now for talent in Silicon Valley. So increasingly, companies to lure employees to late stage startups are offering restricted stock or equity compensation that's similar in form that has a kind of built in value that isn't as susceptible to the valuation being wrong. Late stage investors who could get pinched if they overvalue the company in, in the final phases leading towards IPO are adapting by asking for things like IPO ratchets that give them additional shares should the IPO be a disappointing one. I say the regulators are adjusting in the sense that we've got these indications that the SEC is interested in the area and perhaps trying to look for private company fraud more closely. And this is a bit of a stretch, but I also think. Delaware courts have, in other contexts, begun breathing a lot more life into director oversight failure claims, recent strings of cases, which I think could perhaps address a lot of the types of corporate governance failures that we're talking about. If all these things are already happening, are we already on the right track or is is something more fundamental missing? Abe, thanks for your question and for your kind words. And I do agree that There are tools out there existing already that can be used to improve the corporate governance of unicorns. I think in the paper that I have up, I have argued that we don't actually need to do anything different. The existing corporations law and existing securities law, if we have a more vibrant application of 10b-5 in the private company context, can do the job. I'm not sure I agree so much that the regulators are adjusting. The SEC announced it was going to be you know, tougher on Silicon Valley with 10b-5 back in 2016. And I'm not sure that we've really seen that. I think it's tough to feel like uh, the Delaware courts are adjusting, particularly in the face of last month's Facebook ruling that made it even harder for shareholders to enforce the fiduciary duties of directors. I think I agree with you that the tools could be there, but I'm not sure I agree that the adjustment is coming. I think that there's a lot of pressure in the other direction. I think there's a great temptation to say, if it's not broken, let's not fix it, or okay, maybe it's a little broken, but not enough to justify government intervention. And there's a lot of inertia in in the current status quo. And I really think that what we have the opportunity to address is that issue of whether or not, even if things are slowly starting to change, and I'm again, I'm not 100% sure about that, whether or not we believe that some large group of socially successful, important startups merit the sustained lack of disclosure that the unicorns are getting. And so even though there may be incremental change and the let's wait and see this is a new thing, I think the new thing right now is pretty powerful. And so I think that it is worth examining whether or not slightly more aggressive, if not more aggressive action, better serves our regulatory and societal goals. I'd like to thank all of our panelists for joining today and for the 
excellent conversation and varying perspectives on this big issue in the capital markets and in society at large, the issue of unicorn startups. For listeners who want to delve a little bit more deeply into this topic, I encourage you to click the links to the articles that form the basis of this conversation. And there are going to be links to all those articles in the show notes for the episode. Our guests today have been Abraham Cable, professor of law at the University of California, Hastings. Alexander Platt, Associate Professor of Law at the University of Kansas, Amy Westbrook, Professor of Law at Washburn University, and Matthew Wansley, Assistant Professor of Law at Yeshiva University. Abe is the author of Time Enough for Counting, a Unicorn Retrospective, which was published in the Yale Journal on Regulation Bulletin. Alex is the author of Unicorn Phobia, which is forthcoming in the Harvard Business Law Review. Amy is the author of We're Working on Corporate Governance, Stakeholder Vulnerability in Unicorn Companies, which was published in the University of Pennsylvania Business Law Review. And Matt is the author of Taming Unicorns, which is forthcoming in the Indiana Law Journal. I'll link to all these papers in the show notes for the episode. Abe, Amy, Alex, Matt, thank you for joining the Business Scholarship Podcast. Thank you for having us. Thanks, Andrew. Thanks, Andrew. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Business Scholarship Podcast. If you like what you heard, please consider subscribing to the podcast or leaving a rating on your favorite podcast app, or let other people know about it too. If you have suggestions for future episodes, please let me know. My email address is andrew at andrewkjennings.com, and I look forward to hearing from you. Until the next time, I'm your host, Andrew Jennings.